Holy God, we hear the question ring out from the prophet. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Do you not see? Can you not perceive it? That I am about to do a new thing among you. And we confess, Holy One, that no, many times we can't hear. We don't have eyes to see. And we cannot perceive. We are not aware. And perhaps we don't even have the imagination to imagine that you could do something new in our midst. And so this is our confession, our truth-telling. And we invite you to come and tell your truth to us. Stir our hearts. Stir our imaginations to see something new, to see what you see, to see what you want, to see what you are doing. Help us, holy God, to see the joy on your face as you prepare and plan and work on our behalf and as we experience and imagine your joy may we receive your joy even before we receive the fullness of what you have to give us in this service in this time together lord Make us a people of holy imagination and holy joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, our scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 35. It will be on the screen, and I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word together out of the New International Version. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue out for joy forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. 
This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And so we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. There you have it. My name is Chris, and I get to be one of the pastors here. Tonight, our text out of Isaiah 35 is one that we have preached out of before. We are in year A in the revised uh, common lectionary, and uh, year A focuses on the Old Testament reading of Isaiah. I've actually used this clip before and this song before in a sermon, but I felt it was too important as we looked at Isaiah 35 not to bring it back. When I was in seminary, one of my professors, Darius Salter, said, he was talking to a class, and he said, you must think about everything theologically. And he put an emphasis on the word everything. He said, everything, everything must be thought about theologically. Now, if you don't know what theology is, it is just the study of God. You must see the God in everything, is what he was saying. Well, I scratched my head, but before I could question, on him, question him on that, a guy in my class who was a little snarky from time to time and even a little bit sarcastic kicked back and he said, you cannot think about everything theologically. He said, that is impossible. Not everything is spiritual and not everything has to do with God. Well, my professor immediately, Dr. Salter immediately shot a look at him and he said, really? And then my fellow student said with confidence, really? So Dr. Salter said, go ahead, try me. And the student said, fine. And then he took the last swig of the Coca-Cola that he had been nursing for the whole class period, slammed the can on the table and said, what is theological about that can of Coke? My professor paused And then he started in, I like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Don't you love how I can copy that? (laughs) Grow apple trees and honey bees and snow white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing. And then, of course, some of us were sing with me in perfect harmony. I like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. And then he followed up with, because that's the real thing. And he looked at my fellow student after he had sung that, and he said, challenge me with something difficult. (laughs) The uh, This Coke campaign, this advertisement of 1971, was one of the most famous advertising campaigns of all time. It was the most famous of the 20th century. So many of you know it. It's been repeated after so many years. It was featured in the final episode of the show Mad Men. And versions of this song are still being used today. And it is wholeheartedly theological. It's what we call eschatological. And eschatology is a a theology of a future hope represented in a gathering of people, a gathering of people of all different colors and shapes and sizes singing in harmony. It's quite a future, and it's quite a dream. Because when we look at this, there are elements of safety and inclusion and healing and even transformation here. And there is a single element in the commercial that brings all of these together. All of them together come because they're longing for a great taste. They want the refreshment of a brown bubbled sugared water called Coca-Cola. 
And since that conversation, I've landed on two certainties. And the first is this. While I don't drink Coca-Cola, I gave up that vice on December the 30th of 2012. It's been quite a long time. I've been on the wagon. But I do believe that this ad campaign and others like it touch on a longing that is deep within the human psyche. A longing for a need of harmony and belonging and peace and hope that, that we will just associate ourselves, we'll just associate ourselves with just about anything that provide, that uh, promises to provide these things. The second thing I've landed on is this, that I am coming to believe that Dr. Darius Salter was right. And that is, uh, we must think about everything theologically because the theological is in those things that we would not normally consider. Sometimes we think that there's not really a difference between our space and God's space. Sometimes we think that there is a difference between those two spaces, but there's, there's really not. I was at a church party not long ago when we were, we were uh, told to be in a cookie decorating contest, and the person says, you get two cookies to decorate. One needs to be fun, and the other needs to be decorated spiritual. Okay, so... Uh, there is a, there's, this is what church leaders actually called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a heresy of the church. Gnostics believed that the separation between the physical things, the things that we can touch, the things that we can see, uh, they believed that the, the things that were physical were different than the spiritual things, the things of God. So things like buildings and trees and even bodies, they said those things were evil, but the soul or the spirit or prayers, those were the really righteous, good things. But the early church rejected that almost immediately, and they rejected it wholeheartedly. They believed that everything was spiritual. Because the prophet Isaiah's poem that Mikhail read for us tonight spoke of this reality. It said that God is in everything, and in God all things are actually connected. In God, things are joined. Because of God, all things are spiritual. And that's what my professor was getting at. In the season of Advent, we've been looking at these prophetic writings of Isaiah, and his, his writings survey the past events of ancient his, Israel, as well as their current state of affairs, in order to speak about a future that is imagined in the heart and the mind of God. And really what it's about, it's about a gathering of people and the way to live in a place, in a place together. It's about a gathering of people that try to do life in a place. This text is really about place, or space, or dirt, or dust, or land. You could say that when you read Isaiah 35, you're looking and you're reading about geography. So the present state of, of uh, Isaiah's time and Isaiah's day with God was absolutely no picnic. This is, Isaiah was around 700 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. And the people of God during that time, their present was a time when their land was ransacked. It was invaded and completely destroyed. 
The people of God had forgotten who they were. Uh, They forgot that they were supposed to be a blessing to the others around them. They forgot that they were to provide safety for the broken, include those that were down on their luck, that they were to provide healing that could not, uh, that were not well, and they were to do all of this in the name of their God. But unfortunately, they didn't do any of this. They did not keep the covenant that God had extended to them. They participated in idol worship, and they had committed acts of injustice that held their own relatives in poverty. They had forgotten their past, how God had rescued them. And so now they were paying for it in their present because they had lifted their hands of protection off of the vulnerable and the ones that were suffering in their midst. So God lifted his hand of protection from them. Now their enemies, because God had lifted his hand of protection in them, their enemies was a superpower called Babylon and had moved in and it had destroyed their land. I mean, destroyed it. It jerked all the spoils and resources from the land and whatever couldn't be used was burned or destroyed and that included people. They were mercilessly extinguished. There was nothing left. There was not a house on the land. There was not a tree. There was no sign of anything living and anybody who regrettably survived this tragedy was made a prisoner and was ushered off to a place that was not their home. They were forced into what we call exile. Exile was their present reality. And do you know how they got there? They got there because they forgot to think theologically about everything. They forgot to think theologically about their land, their space, their place. Time and time again, their leaders of the past, Moses, Moses, uh, Joshua, David, Jeremiah, they tried to remind the people that the land was of God and the land was connected to God. Uh, Their stories told them that land, their space was actually theological that their land was spiritual, that land was sacred, that they had a special connection to the land, and any land that they had was a special gift and should be seen as a gift from God. Their land was gone now, which means that the relationship that they had with their land was gone as well. So I think we should learn from their mistakes. We should consider our past make note of our present, and give some thought to our future. I think we should think theologically, theologically about the land and space and those who reside on it. You know, from the beginning of the scriptures, we can see that God was always enjoying creation. In fact, God enjoyed creating and And God is the epitome of what it means to be an artist. God creates just for the joy and the pleasure of creating. And it seems that throughout the Old Testament that God has a unique and very special relationship with this creation. He has a special relationship with the land. The first parts of Genesis speak of the kind of creation, the God creation, God relationship and, and and sometimes people will read Genesis 1 and 2 and they want to talk about how things got created. But really, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they're songs, they're songs and songs of joy. 
When we read Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we should be reading them, but we should also be hearing them because they are, these are songs, God songs in these pages. It's like when we read these first two chapters, God is singing. I like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. I mean, you can see these. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. And that is the story of creation, right? And God likes to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. You can hear this song in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And God does. He creates. And God is joy-filled as he creates. And then God keeps creating. God creates new every morning, the psalmist tells us. Well, in the middle of that place making, in the middle of that creation, God decides to put human beings in the center of it all. It is, that place is the setting for human life. It, and the setting for human life is in that place. And the human that God creates is named Adam. It's, um, it's a derivative of the, of the word or the name Adama, which means uh, the ground or of the earth. Adama. You need to know it's a gender neutral name. Uh, now, some try to translate, translate the word to mean earth or earthling, but it's a little bit too sci fi, so we've landed on human being as the translation. Adama was sculpted from dust. My friend's name is Dusty, and I think that's the best translation. And since Genesis is not just about how things got started, but it's about how things are now, you, me, us, we are made from dust. Your name is Dusty. Dusty, you are from the ground or you are of the earth. You are made up from the same stuff that gets under your fingernails when you pull the weeds you're made from the same stuff that gets in your shorts when you roll on the beach. You are made from the same stuff that you try to keep off your piano and your picture frames. Dusty, I've got something to tell you, Dusty. You are of the same stuff that you are standing on today. Earth, dirt, place, space. You are made up of land. And to think theologically about land is to think theologically about what it means to be a human being. And when we see the land as spiritual, it's a way by which we can think about ourselves and think about our neighbor as well. There is a God in you, in you. There is a divinity in you, a divine element an image, Latin it says, imago Dei. We are not set apart from creation. We are of creation, but amazingly, we are also of God in creation. And this is what God does. And then God doesn't just allow us to enjoy creation or the land, but God allows us as creation and as the land partic be participants in it. It's an amazing thing. Our friends Jason and Carrie Munoz just had the newest 8th Streeter last month. His name is Luca Andre Munoz. I've got a picture of him here for you. I want to show you the next one. This is when he's uh, charming his mother right there. You can tell. 
And then if you look at the next one, this is when he's charming you. And then he's just, the next one is when he's showing us his gigantic feet. That boy is going to have some serious shoes, that's all I know. Now think about this. Jason and Carrie participated in covenant love, and in doing so, they participated in the creation of new life. A baby born in our midst. And Luca's life matches our own. We are born, created in the midst of creation. Birth is about creation, and creation is set in geography. And this little guy isn't just an idea or a dream or an image. He's not a hologram. He was conceived and lived in a womb, and he was delivered in a space, a place, a land. His mom and dad, we know they did the initial work, but there were others uh, besides his parents that helped him get born. His birth is more than simply a biological response. It's bodies and minds and education and efforts and things and spaces. It's like all of the brilliant and best parts of creation come together to help this little boy come into the world. Think about it. Doctors and nurses, techs and secretaries and orderlies, cooks who make the hospital meals, and janitors who clean the mess up at the end. It's also, though, people at accounts payable and the insurance groups and a church But it's not just that. It's about gurneys and beds and sheets and towels. It's hospital rooms and gowns and masks and gloves. It's nursing and cuddling and singing and holding and loving. And men and women who constructed the facility that he was born in. And and there were also architects that, that designed that facility and engineers that designed the tools and the vehicles necessary to make that facility and all the teachers that taught all the people how to do all of the stuff in order for him to enter into the world. It took all of that. It's like creation hosted Luca even before he was. He's a baby born, and now he's a baby formed by the creator God in a place. Eugene Peterson says this, he says, all living is local. As Luca grows, his holy place then will become his bedroom, his grandparents' houses, his mother's rocking chair, and nurseries, and classrooms, and Ball fields and graduation parties and friends and caring adults and activities and interests and calling and vocation, work and bills. This is creation. He is creation in the midst of creation. And he, at the same time, is fully dependent on creation. Creation, place, space, geography. It's all about land. And as this kid was born into the world, it is stuff. People and things located in a place. This stuff is the very essence of holiness. It's the very essence of something that's spiritual. So wonderful, so godlike. Anne Lamont says that God smells like babies behind their ears. I think she's on to something. And it is in land or on land, in a place, space, geography. It's in relationship to this stuff. This creation that is all around us, it's in this that we do our real living. And creatures participate in creation. It's a highly spiritual thing that we do, having a baby, going to school, raising children, 
mowing the lawn, recycling cans, going on walks, observing and appreciating the trees, listening to the music that comes from the strings of a piano, or enjoying what comes out of the brain of a painter as it appears on a canvas. These are spiritual things. This is theological. These are the things of holiness. It is what makes our creation and our world wonderful. And yet... Sometimes in creation as people, we forget to think theologically and we find ourselves creation out of place. I mean, God has a warning and it is this. Do not forget. Don't forget. And God's judgment comes to those who forget, who think they are more than this creation. And there's a word for that. And it's called exile. Creation out of place. We have a tendency to forget. We forget to think theologically. We, we forget that creation and place and land and dirt and dust is the very essence of holiness. We act as if this place where we live is here to do whatever we want to do with it. And in turn, what we do is we break relationship with the land. We forget our identity. We forget our name, that our name is Dusty. Adama, that we are of this place. And there's a biblical word for that, and it's called sin. Sin is uh, when we move through church sanctuaries, to family rooms, to coffee shops, to hospital rooms, to classrooms, to community gatherings, and we find that we are bored or unsatisfied or just think that it's not enough for us. And that gets us in huge trouble. Sometimes we don't think about the land or the space or the creation where we are or the goodness of it or the God in it. And so we discard it. We sometimes forget that this is our playground. Yes, but it is our playground to do our playing with God. The land is rich and it's ripe with the presence of God and and we have a relationship with it and we have a relationship with the others who play here. We forget that the land is our platform for participation in the daily work of God. And we don't see our relationship with the land or the space or the place as something to be cherished, but instead um, we try to control it. And in doing so, we try to manipulate it. And in doing so, real people are affected, harmed. In fact, they might even die. Manifest destiny. The trail of tears. The invasion of Poland, global warming, the constant threat of war, gentrification of neighborhoods, unethical farming practices, only giving money to schools in affluent areas, pipelines running through North Dakota, children separated from their parents, housing discrimination issues, immigration laws that are unfair. And for those of you who live in virtual space, how we deal with people online. These these are theological issues. These are God issues. God issues that concern land and space and place and territory. They're theological issues that concern us. Earthlings, human beings, Adama, Dusties. 
When, when we act as if this is our place, that it is ours to do with what we will, to consume it for our pleasure, to destroy it for our advancement, to threaten it by, by threatening one another, when we violate it or exploit it or abuse it, the relationship with the land, the relationship with creation, in ter- and in turn, the creator is broken. And this is when that which was intended to be holy is actually desecrated. We call it brokenness. We call it exile. We call it sin. And God says that his judgment will come to those who forgo these commandments. You know, the first part of Isaiah is about a people who forgot to think theologically. And they find themselves broken and in exile. And, and their sin has crushed them. And, jo- and, and Isaiah says that God, this is a form of God's judgment. But remember last week we talked about God's judgment. And I used to think of God, the way I described it is this. I used to think of God's judgment. When I thought of God's judgment, I, I thought about it in light of what happens way in the end of time, like in the future. Eschatology does mean uh, a theology of last things. And, and I thought that God's judgment was the very last thing. But in Isaiah and in the other prophets, and more importantly, in the way Jesus taught, uh, judgment, God's judgment, wasn't God's last saving move at the end of time, but rather judgment is God's first saving move. Meaning God says, enough is enough. You are my people And do not do it in this way. And the reason that we know that is because right in the middle of chapter 35, when the people who are reading this for the first time are in the midst of exile, when their sin has broken them, when they had forgotten to think theologically about their land, Isaiah's prophecy of of chapter 35 sounds like creation. And if you listen really closely, you can almost hear God singing in the text. I like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. And God creates a vision and a future of perfect harmony. In Isaiah 35, God begins to go about the work of creating again. He goes about dreaming about a new future for those who are broken or those who are left in exile. And and what you find in Isaiah 35 is that the oppressed, well, they're judged and then they're saved. And what you also find is the oppressors are judged and when they repent of their ways, they are saved as well. And Isaiah's text is about a new land, a new vision. It's a land according, a land, a land that according to Isaiah has feelings. The actual creation, the land will be glad and it will burst into bloom. It once looked like a desert, but it's, it's going to burst into bloom. Water will gush for the first time in a long time. Animals will celebrate. Grass will grow. However, God does not just create a place that's somewhere out there. His vision is not just somewhere over the rainbow. God does something unusual. The physical and the spiritual come together in a cosmic collision. 
And apparently, Genesis, which is the opening act of creation, because of the new land, because of the new Adam, as Paul puts it, uh, was born not in a hospital room with masks and gloves and professionals, but there was one who was born in land, in a trough. And he was one where there was no place for him. And as he was delivered, he was surrounded by the very elements of creation. Animals, mud, germs, dust, dirt. He was born in a place that did not want him. He was exiled. In the birth of In the birth of the Christ child, the future of Isaiah, Isaiah's future longing is actually being realized. The new land, the new Adam, is the essence of the new creation, which means that you and I stand in new creation right now. And according to Paul, he is the new creation who takes that that which is old, that, that which is old in us, and he recreates us as well. He heals our bodies. He cures us of our diseases. He saves our souls. He restores our land. The new Dusty is his name. He is the one who is God in flesh, God in our midst, God in teeth and toenails. The new land is the baby that was born in the major. He is the God who shows up, not in the way in which we expected, but the one who shows up and is coming in the way in which we all need. Isaiah says that there is this highway of holiness that runs through the old deserted land. John says it this way, that Jesus is the way that this happens. His birth in the midst of creation frees us from our exile. He's the new life. He's the new creation. He is the tree that we can anchor ourselves to. The new land. He is the new living. He is the new reality that is God. Should we celebrate? I think so. Should we tremble? Oh, I think so too. I love this quote that I heard a little while ago. If you want to look at creation full, creation at its highest, You know what you do? You look at a person, a man, a woman, or a child. But all this comes together as good news. Creation is God's gift of life and the conditions necessary for lives. Our lives, all this comes as good news in the birth of Jesus. He is coming. And so we celebrate. He is coming to restore our land. And so we celebrate. He is coming again And that is something that we should be ready for. For it is in him that the world finds itself in perfect harmony again. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do not believe that the vision of Isaiah comes in any other thing. No product, no person, other than the person of your son. Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who has taken the brokenness that we feel, that we've experienced, and we've caused. And he restores it. I've had so many conversations this week of brokenness. Conversations among my friends here. And I pray along with the apostles who prayed, Lord, come quickly. Would you do the great work of restoring them? 
Would you do the great work of forgiving them? Would you do the great work of judging them so that they might be made new? And would you do these same things in me? This is what we anticipate. This is what we hope for. And we trust that this one who matched us, who is the new Adam, the new Dusty, the one who exemplifies and embodies the new creation, will be the new creation. And he will be the one who heals our land and restores us as well. This is what we hope for. And this is what we pray for together. May we not forget to think theologically that in ordinary, plain things, that you, the God, are there. We pray these things in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. You know, our table is a sacred place. It's a sacred place that has the elements of the earth, bread and juice. It's at the table where we remember that the one uh, who took on flesh and blood demonstrates the essence of God's new future. And he is the one who embodies it as well. It's at a table like this where he is the Lord and offers us an invitation to the table where we find safety, inclusion, healing, and especially the transformation we need. At our church, this is an open table, and it, I want to invite you to this table. It's, it's for everyone who is available to love of God in Christ. If that is you, you are welcome to this table. But this table comes with a story, and the story goes like this. Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then in the same way, after supper, he held up the cup and he said, every time you drink of this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. It represents the blood that is shed for you. All who are open to this transforming work of God in Christ are welcome. All who long for a restored relationship with creation and the God of creation are welcome to this table. At this table, his freedom is felt. At this table, his justice is real. And everyone who is open to believe in the good work of God in Christ is welcome to receive these elements. It is here where new life begins in us. I want to let you know we want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free. Our cup is non-alcoholic. But I invite you to come down the aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it because it is a gift so allow these to serve you. Come to them in humility. Allow them to serve you. Listen to what they have to say. Then d dip the bread into the cup and eat it. If for any reason you're unable to come, Justin would love to come serve you, bring the elements to you. But when you are ready, friends, you may come to this table.